Hello clinicians and hello my peers. We are back for yet another episode of the Becoming Healers podcast and I'm always excited and I'm always thankful to be back in your ears, hoping to add some value to your context, your story, your narrative as a clinician in the South African healthcare sector. We've taken such a meaningful journey through emotion words to empower us as a clinician group to have a more fruitful mental well-being journey. And this week is going to be a little bit different, but still on the course of trying to enrich and, and enable our lives to be fuller because we are mentally stronger and just more aware of some of the emotions that destabilize us and put us in different states. So my only request to you is if you find that this episode adds value to you, would you be so kind as to share it on to the peers, to the colleagues, to the family members who you believe would really, really benefit from hearing some of the content in our conversation. And I hope that these conversations are actually starting to move the needle in terms of how you're experiencing being more aware of yourself emotionally in your healthcare context, but also helping others to to navigate that same journey because that's the goal, right? We want to move towards better emotional states as a healthcare group, as a generation of healthcare workers, rather than just having silos of individuals who are more empowered than others. So do the right thing. Share on if you know a few people who would benefit from this conversation. Let's delve right into it. Hello, ladies, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Becoming Healers podcast. We're at episode six, guys, like... Six emotion words, six emotional phrases in, and I think we've done some really meaningful work. Last week, we we did some hard work, okay, so we are speaking about normally I'm wounded, and I think it was a bit of a heavy podcast. So this week, we're going to be a bit more solution-oriented and inviting people on this conversational journey where we unpack psychological safety. So it's going to be a nice one, an interesting one, because I think in general, as healthcare workers, it's probably something we know and expect to exist, but haven't actually seen well modeled in our context. So I'm very excited to hear your thoughts and really to ideate with you today, because I think um, for the most part, we'll be creating with our words what we may not have personally experienced. And I think we can be really proud of contributing in that way. Um, but before we kick off something a little lighthearted, um, how did you have fun this past week? Like, what have you been doing to, 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 to bring joy and fun into your world? Just especially because I always bring you conversations that probably take you to hard places. <laughs> I think I, I'll go because I'm yeah, not sure precious is there. <laughs> well, I know she's there, but I want to, I can't see her face in her expression. <laughs> I think for fun, this week has not been, well, the past two weeks have not been fun, but I think it's been exciting, sure. uh, especially since the wedding shopping has been done quite literally. Yes. Yay. So actually, it, it is joyful. It's yes. joyful. It was a lot of hard work, but I think, I think, yeah, that, that, that was it. It was doing everything and getting it all in order and feeling good about it. Yeah, mm, that part, feeling good about nice it. That's one. so good. Like ticking, ticking all those things off the list. Ticking it. Yes. Nice. Well done. Yeah. Precious for you? For me, it's actually also wedding related. Yes. Come I, on, <laughs> Yesterday I received a box of champagne to taste for the wedding. So I'm so excited. That was mm. really fun. Did it with my family. Yeah. So I think that's been the 
the highlights of my week champagne tasting that's incredible guys also thank you for spreading the wedding cheer i mean <laughs> um i i get to connect with you guys offline about this but thanks for sharing it with our audience it's just it's so nice to have celebration as a theme in your life right now and i think it's something that um you know particularly when we navigate emotions we spend a lot of energy working through the negative stuff and yeah. and not taking enough time to see how influential the positive stuff is. So I love that you guys have had those experiences. What did I do for fun? Oh, I ate, guys. Yay. <laughs> I find <laughs> making food and eating food just one of the biggest blessings. And I had my favorite burger last week, and it was still memorable even now. Mm. Um, so I ate, and it's, it's an activity I really enjoy. <laughs> I love watching your Sunday videos. Yes, my Sunday. Yes, I was in the kitchen cooking. I also really love my Sunday, Sunday videos. I'm not too much of a, of a content creator. <laughs> so only the people on my WhatsApps get to see <laughs> <laughs> my amateur content creation skills. But yeah, I loved the meal I made this weekend. It was a beautiful crispy pork belly. Um, yeah, so mm. I loved it. Well, thanks for that lighthearted introduction. And I guess I just want to kick off again by reminding us that off the back of last week's episodes, I mean, last week we were talking about our wounds, you know, normally we are wounded and we took a really, I think, challenging journey through the wounds we've experienced as clinicians in the healthcare sector, where they came from, and some of the emotions we've had to navigate because of that. We highlighted and we touched on hard emotions, I think, which is anger and grief, but we're going to pivot from that, um, not necessarily leaving the theme of normally I'm wounded, but adding to that by by bringing on the topic of part two and calling it, you know, normally I'm wounded part two, but speaking about psychological safety. And before we begin, I think it's important to agree on the definition. And the definition I have of psychological safety is what I found uh, from an article from the Center for Leadership Excellence, I believe. And they say that psychological safety is a belief that you won't be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns, or mistakes. They go on to ask, what is psychological safety at work in particular? It is a shared belief held by members of a team that others on the team will not embarrass, reject, or punish you for speaking up. So maybe just to kick off, your thoughts on that definition, ladies, and a really honest question, have you experienced that in your context at all? I think working at SADAG for me has been always a very open space. We're always very creative. I think working for an NGO, to be honest, it's been mm. very vibrant, if that's the right word to use. There's mm. always, you know, ideas being thrown around. There's always options being had. And I think that's something that allows a lot of growth. You know, like, okay, let's try this. Let's look at what, what, what impact this can have. And I think with the shared, you know, like when you have that shared passion, yes. I think it makes it vital. And yeah. once you have that passion behind it, you have that almost that synergy. Where you're just building on building. And I think that's something that has grown so much with SADAG, even within this COVID space. Mm, that's incredible. That's I mean, yeah. Precious for you. 
I would say I have experienced psychological safety with with my work environment. I move around a lot in terms of the teams that I'm working with. So sometimes you're working with the casualty team. Sometimes, you know, you're in your ward with your more regular team and then you move departments as well. So I would say I do experience um, psychological safety. Currently, I'm doing psychiatry, so that would make sense. And I've got a supervisor who's very open to teaching when you're wrong, mm. but also demands a certain level of um, participation on your side and effort on your side. So she provides a challenging work environment, but also supports you in a, in a safe way and doesn't humiliate you when you make a mistake. And I think in the past, there have been certain departments where that hasn't been the case and there have been some where it is the case. So across the board, I think there's been a balance on my side. I would, I would definitely have to agree with actually both of you from the perspectives I've worked, perspectives I've worked in, you know, or, or the areas I've worked. So definitely while I was in clinical medicine, I can also say it was a balance. There were certainly some departments where that was more readily available. And I think one of the things that can also contribute to the psychological safety we, we may experience is almost the consistency of the team. You know, the way the, the mm. rotations are designed is that you move, at least with us, you moved with the same people throughout your blocks. So it was mm. easier to find your people and to know the people and the colleagues that created a, a safe space for you. And in the same way, to also identify some of the characters that you didn't necessarily feel that with and keep your distance if that's the case. But I think that type of structure also helped us cultivate it. And then now in the corporate context, I definitely say so. <laughs> to the point I'd say where it was very intimidating in the beginning because I was so used to the hierarchical structure. I almost mm. didn't know how to perform outside of it. I didn't know how to speak up and, and I didn't see and understand that, you know, my youth was something that the team needed and desired and they wanted me to contribute at the big people's table. And that's not necessarily an everyday experience in the clinical context. So I've definitely had to also grow in trusting people so that I can perform even when the environment is psychologically safe. And I think that helps me segue into the first bit of conversation. Um, and ladies, we've done some reading. I'm also just loving the learning we're doing through the season. Yes. Um, and <laughs> we're just learning and enriching ourselves in terms of like literature. And this week we've been working through an article by the Harvard Business Review. It was published in August of 2017 and written by Laura Delizona. I hope I said her name right. <laughs> and the article is titled, titled High Performing Teams Need Psychological Safety. And here's how to create it. So we're going to be referencing a few snippets to guide us through this conversation. But I want to go back to a point that Precious made just around the trust that the leader created for the psychological safety to exist in the team. And I just want to read a snippet from the article, and it says, there's no team without trust, says Paula Sataga. Also, I don't know if I said her name right, but I remember reading that line for the first time, and like, my chest, <laughs> like someone kicked me in my chest, I was like, yo, <laughs> mm. that's absolutely honest. Um, 
and essentially uh, the the point is it speaks to the fact that this person Paul sorry not Paula the head of industry at Google knows the results of the tech giant's massive two-year study on team performance, which revealed that the highest-performing teams have one thing in common, psychological safety. They believed that you won't be punished when you make a mistake. Studies show that psychological safety allows for moderate risk-taking, speaking your mind, creativity, and sticking your neck out without fear of having it cut off. Just all the types of behavior that lead to market breakthroughs. Now, this is obviously the Harvard Business Review. We are not talking about sales. We are talking about people's lives. And it's Mm. not the same thing. But I think the point remains that for a clinical team to perform excellently, they need to be able to trust each other. They need to be able to trust their leaders. So my first question to us that we can maybe talk through is, what do you think contributes to the distrust and then essentially the lack of psychological safety in some of our teams. Mm. I think it's exactly that. It's it's the distrust. Yeah. I think it's it's you know it's it's exactly that. It's like when you when you do fear being almost you know um, singled out as making mm. the mistake mm. instead of saying okay I've you've made this mistake and it's happened now what are we going to do about it instead of doing that. So I think also it, it comes down to also asking questions. Mm. You know, if, if you're not, if you don't have that psychological, you know, safety space, right? Then if you're questioning yourself, you don't, you're not opening, you're not opened up into actually questioning and saying, Oh, okay. Is this correct? Can I get a bit of clarity here? And that often helps. Yeah. I think it's, it's a valuable question to ask for clarity. But and some people are afraid. Team, it creates that. To, exactly. But, yeah, some people are afraid to ask. And I know that... And they shouldn't be. They shouldn't be. But I think part of the problem is they've probably seen... The they've seen someone being ask. ridiculed for asking. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's what behavior. we have to change. Mm. And I think that's something that, that in small amounts can change. Not definitely. I mean, it is... And I think Precious can attest to this, that it it might be a little bit more systemic than what I'm saying. It's obviously Mm. simple to say it. Mm. But I think it's that creation of the young people. And that's why I always, and I I recently also did a talk with, you know, medical students. And I even said, I said, you guys are, you know, the ones that are going to set the bar. So change the bar. Mm, I love it. Change the bar. Change the bar. Change Change that bar. bar. Mm. Speak up. Have those hard conversations that, you know, that, and you said like the, like, you know, the, the, the big people on the table. Yeah. It's change those conversations so that they can also have them and say, Oh, it's not so bad to have these conversations. Hey, and it's okay to ask if they're not sure about certain things. That's very good. Mm. That was true. Precious for you. I think uh, one thing I'll just go on back to the point that Venetia was making about being afraid to ask questions. And I think that it is important for us to step back and think like, you know, the people that usually study health sciences are people who are curious, people who have a lot of questions or people who are usually, you know, top of their class. And so you have to ask yourself what makes that type of a person come out the end of the tunnel, not wanting to ask and not wanting to be curious and not being inquisitive. And there's something that happens in between that time that discourages that 
So I think that's something really important for us to think about. And I'm glad Venetia brought it up. And then I also think, you know, things that create an unsafe space for us are just witnessing humiliation yeah. on a regular basis, because that is, you know, we've always, we've spoken about this in our smaller circles, but it almost uh-huh. seems like humiliation is used as a teaching method whether you're in ward rounds or lectures and you don't want to undergo that. And so it shapes the way that you respond in that environment. And it does make you anxious and nervous because you don't, you don't want to be the one that's picked to even answer a question because you're just going to be put on the chopping block. And I also think that we teamwork is very important in healthcare. It's, it's crucial in terms of health outcomes, but the way in which behavior is rewarded doesn't reflect that throughout medical school and in your internship and beyond. Teamwork is not necessarily necessarily rewarded. There's almost an every man for himself type of attitude that's rewarded. And one example I can think of is going back to when there were protests in varsity, when those fees must fall and those roads must fall, all those protests, the behavior that was rewarded wasn't teamwork and coming together and you know deciding as a group what's going to happen but the the behavior that was rewarded was your i'm looking after myself i'm number one you guys go do what you're going to do you know whether or not you believed in what was happening the the behavior that was rewarded wasn't necessarily from a teamwork's uh point of view and I think the last point, sorry I've I've said so many (laughs) points but I think the last point Yeah, I think the last point is also the stress that supervisors experience. And I thought that was really Mm. nice in the article because it was, it balanced the, the views in the sense that supervisors also get stressed by having employees that are subordinate that don't cooperate or always try and show them up. And we have a lot of you know, notoriously, we have a lot of type A, top of the class personalities that don't like being told what to do, that like to challenge authority. And sometimes that can be good, but it can also lead to dysfunction within the team. And I think that's hard to sometimes balance as a supervisor in terms of how to deal with that. And sometimes it comes out in pathological ways that aren't good for the team. Sure. And I think that that touches on having open com- conversations yeah. and, you know, having those, having those spaces that dialogue can happen because yeah. without that exact dialogue, you're not, there is no possible growth. Mm, exactly. And I mean, you can't stay stagnant. You have to grow. You have to change. It's the one constant is the, the fact that you have to change. And I think that's something that I think that it, it's, we have to sort of like push forward to. Every given point that we have, like if you have a step open, jump that step. Yeah, you know, it's like not yeah. to just wait there. Mm. Yo, guys, as usual, man, whole script. Like, <laughs> I'm just torn. <laughs> like, I had a, I had an idea, but you both said important things. We, you spoke on asking, and this this idea of creating, you know, the conversational spaces, and then precious, mm. you highlighted so beautifully, sort of. The, the three core pillars. I heard shame in your first one, you know, people just feeling ashamed and fearing the sense of shame. Then there's the contending and the contesting, especially leadership, which also is a, is a trait that contributes to the 
psychological and safety. And it's、mm. both of those points on either side make me think of systems. You know, I think one of the things that disable the team trust is not being clear on what system has been put in place for this、mm. environment to get back to safety. Especially because we work in a volatile and dynamic environment, right? Things、exactly. are constantly changing. You can wake up in the like you can get to the ward, and half an hour later there'll be a recess. That、mm. context will clearly change the team's emotional state and the psychological、mm. safety for the people who are involved in the recess versus the people who are seeing the patients while the recess is happening. And when there's no systems in place for You know, how do we help those people who are there, or how do we help the people who now feel overwhelmed that they're by themselves because there's a recess? Then all of these other elements start to to resurface, right? We get triggered all over again and display our our own sort of internal fears. And I'm actually reminded of a portion in the article that I'd like to highlight, and it really speaks about how the brain processes. Those types of provocations.、Mm. So it reads: the brain processes a provocation by a boss, competitive coworker, or dismissive subordinate as a life or death threat. The amygdala, the alarm bell in the brain, ignites the fight or flight response, hijacking higher brain centers. This act first, think later brain structure shuts down perspectives and analytical reasoning. Quite literally. Just when you need it most, we lose our minds. While that fight or flight reaction may save us in life or death situations, it handicaps the strategic thinking needed in today's workplace. Twenty-first century success depends on another system: the broaden and bold mode of positive emotion, which allows us to solve complex problems and foster corporate relationships. And with that in mind, and with how you guys answered. I want to ask a question, which is probably going to be a bit of an imaginary question.、Um, <laughs> what What do you think some of the core components of a system that enables psychological safety, knowing that those those moments where our amygdalas are flying are are more frequent than they probably should be? If we were to design systems and structures and in, in, and put them in place, and if they exist, please do share. What does it look like so that even when those stress moments show up and they do so frequently and multiple times in a clinician's day, what are the things they can fall back on to return to a baseline of psychological safety?、Mm. I think it's perspective.、Mm. I, like、I think it's refocus and getting to that perspective where. You know that refocus and changing、mm. your perspective because if you're in that fight or flight space, and and patients can actually probably speak more in that within that clinician space. But if I speak about it from like being completely objective and from the outside, I'll say that you know like it's it's almost like training yourself that when you're feeling overwhelmed, when you when something is in front of you. And it's overwhelming, and it's like a very difficult situation. That you take, like, not to say that you have time for a mindful minute,、mm-hmm. but a moment where it allows you and allows your entire body, because I mean, our minds are part of our bodies. Our bodies、mm-hmm. are also reacting, you know. And often, when we're in a stressful space, you can feel you feel your hands tingling, or you feel you know something of that sort. So it's, I think, being aware. 
Mm. of what our bodies are doing and what our minds are doing and saying, okay, I need to refocus now because this is happening. And each of us are so different. Mm. I mean, we are so different. We're all going to manage it differently. We're all going to use different coping skills. But I think it's that refocus and changing perspective, just, you know, sort of to manage something like that. And you can always come back to it. As, I mean, after that, I remember Precious said about reflection. Previously, yeah. we spoke about it. And I think... You know, you can always come back to it at the end of the day or after an hour and reflect on how you, mm. how you felt about that situation, how you dealt with it and how you can manage that in the future. I like that. And That's I really hear good. you saying, yeah. you know, is, it's so important to label. So taking mm. the moments, the moments to label this as, okay, this is definitely a high pressure moment. This is a place where my psychological safety is being destabilized. I need to take time to process this at a later stage, but I've marked it. I've seen it. I'm, I'm aware. Let's bag it and continue if that's what we need to do. Precious, I think you're trying to say something. Uh, Sorry, I interrupted you. No, I was just agreeing with what you're saying. <laughs> 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 I wasn't saying anything. Um, yeah, I, I think this is actually a really big topic. Yeah. Because. I think healthcare, you know, it's not, it's not a unique career in the sense that they are high performing teams, but I think that what is unique is the approach, um, mm. from an organizational management level is that there isn't really a recognition that you are working with a high performing team and there's no strategy in place for that. And so I, I do think that for me at a systems level, because Obviously, you know, when you're managing a team, you've got your own strategy. Every manager manages their team in a different way. But I do yeah. think that there are some, there are some core competencies that can be applied across the board. And yeah. I think firstly, and I, I've been a proponent of this for so long, but like career and team coaching, like having a coach. And it doesn't necessarily have to be all the time, but you, yeah. I think you do need team coaching. It's a high performing team. There needs to be a coaching element to things, even if it is just maybe the manager coaching the manager on how to manage a high performing team. Cause it is difficult and you're dealing with people that are at high intellectual levels and at high performing levels. So it will be challenging. And I also think feedback is important. Like Venetia was saying, yeah. Opening up that platform for conversation, but also having a direction for that conversation, right? So not us just expressing our feelings, but also having an outcomes based way of conversing in terms of me being able to say, listen, this is what's going on. This is what I like. This is what I don't like. And you also being able to tell me what it is you like and what it is you don't like so that they can actually be improvement. And it takes me back to the internship logbook where you do the mid block assessment and then you do the end of block assessment and that's actually not regulated. And some of that, that feedback is not even seen. So there is like, there's a plan in place for it to happen, but it's not seen. And sometimes when you're honest, you don't get signed off. And so there's no improvement. So that feedback is actually really important because it can enable departments and teams to function in a better way knowing what what everyone feels in an objective way and then also having 
conflict management. And I know that it seems, <laughs> it seems silly to say that managers should do formal conflict management courses, but I think it's very necessary when you are dealing with very volatile emotional workspaces because you're not just, you know, even in work, in normal work scenarios where people's lives are not at risk and all of this, you still get conflict. But here there's yeah. such heightened levels of emotion that you really do need to have a certain capacity for shepherding your team through those emotions. And if you don't, then it's also a good opportunity to call for help and, yeah. you know, get, get psychologists and get counselors to come in and help you shepherd the team in that way. And then the last thing I would say is also just collaborating when you do see mistakes, right? So I think this is also from a leadership point of view, but mm. there will be mistakes. There will be points of learning and there's a decision you have to make about, okay, am I humiliating this person? Am I punishing this person or am I collaborating with them to get the outcome that I think is desired? So for yeah. example, if, you know, there's a new intern who doesn't know how to do a certain exam or doesn't know how to take a, a set of bloods in that moment, Am I humiliating them and saying, but you learned this in medical school? Or am I walking with them and saying, okay, let's do it like this. Let's do it like this. This is expected of you. And let's make sure you know it by the end of this interaction, at least. Yeah. Sure. I think that's, that's very valuable. Yeah. Because I think, I think that's, that's absolutely valuable because just to touch on like conflict resolution, I think that's a valuable like asset to have for any individual mm. because it, ena it enables growth and development. Yeah. Without, without that, then there is no growth and development. Then it's just that stagnation mm. of, of the same principles, the same way of doing things. So that, I mean, the same thing with conflict resolution and then collaboration saying, you know, if you're not sure about how to do this, let me show you so that you also feel any both that confidence. Yes. And I think young doctors, medical mm. students need that confidence because they're in a new space. Even with first years, like we all know it, right? When we went from school and went to first year university, it was hard because it was a completely different ball game. Yeah. Completely, completely different, different, yeah. And those of us that might not have had enough confidence struggled with it. And mm. those of us who had lots of confidence were like, hey, this is like head on. Mm. So there's lots of different people and that also touches on our uniqueness, but it builds that confidence, builds that resilience. And it's just about, you know, being kind, I think, mm. to the next person and saying, yeah. if you're not sure about this, you know, I'm here. It's okay. It's that supportive structure yeah. that needs to be created in all spaces. Yeah. Yo, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, my mind is racing in a million directions. I'm so moved by just your responses. And I think, Precious, the, the buckets, if I can call them that, that you offered can't be mm. missed. Like, we actually need to delve into each one of them separately. This idea of coaching, then feedback, mm -hmm. then conflict management, then collaborating. Yes. And 
And you spoke to competencies. And I mean, that's the cry of my heart. If you go on the AMD website, you'll see that one of the things you want to see is people, you know, we call it this idea of becoming leaders, the name of the podcast. Um, and it's really about creating a new clinician. And this, this clinician has both skill sets, right? They are clinically sound, so you do what you need to do at the bedside, but you're operationally excellent. And as you both were speaking, I just felt like we are not trained to be operationally efficient or operationally excellent. So mm. 100%, most of our experiences are psychologically unsafe because we are proficient in one area and completely inefficient in it. Well, we are efficient in one area, in one area, and then completely inefficient in another. And it's it's like a key part of the puzzle. It's the yin to the yang. So yeah. if we don't have those competencies, or if we're not looking to build them personally, or our organizations don't think it's important, then obviously the cycle of psychological safety continues, no matter how hard we try to build those personal boundaries capacities within ourselves um mm. but i think what you what you said before you unpack those things is also something to speak to that we with i think it's across the board the leaders and even the teammates often are not aware that they are in a high performance team oh true that, that's true <laughs> that's to begin with <laughs> is a point of like immense awareness is we need to take a moment to define like what does that mean and what does that look like and and how should high performing teams operate and I think because we don't have those blueprints we just go with the flow and then nothing really great comes out of that not from an outcomes perspective I mean not from an experience perspective and I think it's one of my it's also why people then leave right because mm. the experience is just not good enough. I mean, I can't tell you how, like, not a month passes by <laughs> where I don't get an email, a text, or a DM from a doctor saying, hey, I'm looking to explore my options. That's not a bad thing. I just think the reason why is bad and the reason why it can be solved. Yeah. I agree with that. Mm. The reason why it can be solved. Yeah. So I don't even know how to navigate this here. Truly, honestly, I'm gobsmacked by both of you right now. <laughs> <laughs> really, yeah. truly. But if we were to think of, I mean, the doctor who's in the context right now, quite practically, what does it look like for them to to enable that environment, knowing full well, right, that they're not going to necessarily get budget approval or sign off from, let alone their HOD. What does it look like for someone who's, an intern or even a medical student to start to build these competencies for themselves and alongside their peers. Mm. It's challenging. I think some spaces do exist for this. Yeah. And, and I think being part of a high performance team or realizing that you're part of one, one of the, the key things is to ask yourself what contribution you're going to make. Firstly, like that's the most important thing. It's good. What am I going yeah. to give to this team? And then taking initiative as well. So you're going to find that there's certain environments you walk into when there's just no infrastructure for leadership at your level. So at an intern level or 
a junior MO level. Yeah. And there are opportunities for you to create that in the space where you see it's lacking because it's not across the board where there's no opportunity for you to contribute in, in, in the sense of leadership. There's mm. institutions where they do that very well. Mm. And I've actually been at two different institutions for internship. One of them did it really well where every group was empowered to have, you know, four leaders within the group. And that also empowered the, the rest of the group to have their, their voice heard because they mm. also go to a higher platform and express all of these concerns and the ways that the teams are working. So I think that it's not always about a, a budget or about a huge sort of initiative, but just starting at yeah. a basic level of us as a team at, at the same level of, let's say, internship, us as, as colleagues, are we all on the same page? And is there a yeah. way for us to escalate things when we're not when we're not all contributing, when we're not all working as a team, is there a way for us to get that mediated so that we are functioning at that level? So it's like a very, very basic competency at first before moving on to that level of like, okay, leadership now. Right. Yeah. I think that that, that empowerment really caught me. It's mm. like empowering, mm. you know, like I mean to to have that space. And I think – you know, creating that supportive structure is, is, is exactly what Prisha said. It's, it doesn't have to be budget. It doesn't have to be, you know, a big initiative or a big activity, you know, that you have to have. Sometimes it comes from those small, almost hourly, you know, touch bases or, you know, a small sort of within that week, you have a half an hour where everyone interacts and has a safe space. Mm. And I think that's maybe something that, that will help in the long run because if you know that you, you have the safe space and it's coming up, you know, every day or every second day or whenever I think, you know, is feasible for the very busy environment because I know hospitals are very busy environment. <laughs> I don't by any means mean that it's easy to take out that time. But, yeah. you know... Just, just to know that it's a safe space. And now with remote, being remote, yeah, maybe even something like a support group or something that's, you know, just that safe space. And I think a lot of, a lot of people right now, whether it be doctors, you know, general corporate workers or, you know, anyone, even students, mm. it's, it's very hard to find these safe spaces it because is. everything is so uncertain. Mm. before you had that safe space, you know, in the old, like, I mean, you know, I'll say olden days, but like pre-COVID, <laughs> your safe space was almost like, you know, you have your friend and you're going to go for your weekly cup of coffee at yeah. a coffee shop and just have, you know, the a fat, the fattest chat. Yeah. And, and that would be your safe space. And now it's so hard and within the work environment and also the, the, the expectations yeah. of having to just produce, produce, produce mm. is a lot harder. It's a lot. You know, it's not gotten easier in this remote world as, as much no. as some people might think it's easier to just, you know, log onto your computer in the morning <laughs> and do your work and then finish up at five. It, it doesn't work like that. You know, it doesn't. It stays within you. So I think it's creating those safe spaces that doesn't cost much at all, but also provides that sense of communication and sense of community. Yeah, and doing I think it that's together, what right? Lost. Yeah, doing it's it together as the team. I, yes. I think it's maybe something that that 
like Precious alluded, there are institutions that definitely do it well and institutions that that almost put you in a clear awareness that, guys, you're all in this together. And I think when when that isn't how things start, then it becomes easy for people to sort of pursue their own agenda. But when there's a collective, very clear, well-defined journey for learning, for whatever phase you're in, and then this awareness that these are also the people you're supposed to do this with. I mean, varsity, it was easier to create, right? You were so clear that, like, these are your people, this is your graduating class, we're doing what we need to to get to the end together, whether it's <laughs> sharing notes or, yeah, um, you know, read me the section you summarize or <laughs> share the summaries. But we somehow lose that when we get into the working environment, maybe because we don't know the people, because we haven't clearly defined that this is another experience we get to journey with together. And the common goal for all of us is to leave as qualified, you know, medical practitioners. And the ideal, the standard for exiting should be X, Y, Z. So I love what what you said, V, around, you know, creating those spaces. But I think also, um, I think something Precious alluded, alluded to is agreeing on on what's right, you know, agreeing on what's the channel we use when we don't have the right outcome or the preferred outcome. Um, mm. And I think it also it also rests in the truth that, unfortunately, the hierarchical nature or the fast-paced environment we work in doesn't leave room for people to interrogate the current system. And I personally, I feel yes. like it's one of the things that that keeps the healthcare sector behind, as we actually mm. don't see the asset in a new eye and a new pair of eyes. The people who are at the bottom who are doing the very hard work often don't come from the context they're working in and are very quick to identify the problems. But because, to your point, Christians, we haven't been empowered with the competency to collaborate, then all it becomes is another heightened problem rather than an opportunity for them to be the solution drivers and then create the safety in the environment. For the, for each other and for the broader team. So I think it's definitely a weakness. Like, I, I, personally, I've always thought instead of like six months of time in like family medicine, give people three months in like R&D in, <laughs> in policy writing. Give them time to make that would be so great. Oh, that in be so how great. it works because they are the people who are closest to the pain points. How are you ignoring what they are seeing, right? Because exactly. when you can solve for the pain points, you're really going to start solving for the for the healthcare sector at large. So, uh, my personal <laughs> two cents on how the NDO should try out at that mm. <laughs> But that's but that's something that's brilliant when you said that fresh set of eyes. Yeah. I mean, we all know when we've when we've edited a document or we've edited a report, right? You always want a fresh, fresh set of eyes that someone else looks at it or you wait till tomorrow and you have this one last read yes. or something like that because a fresh set of eyes make a big difference. You yeah. see what you haven't seen before and it's a simple concept. And it, it really also do it. It stops invalidating the fact that just because they're clinically junior doesn't mean they don't have other competencies to add to the yes. team operationally. 
And I think that's the saddest thing that those experiences leave people with is this general feeling of, I need to develop competency or I need to grow up in the clinical aspect before I have a voice. When exactly. Oh. You have a, you have such a voice and your voice is actually the prize of the entire team because you haven't been sanitized and essentially diluted by molded, molded by the challenges framing the context. You see it and you're like, that's whack. But like that article spoke to part of a, a valuable psychologically safe environment is having a team leader or a context that allows you to voice that and is, and is open to taking those suggestions and helping you find a mutual resolution to the problem you've just identified. But because we work in contexts that are just like reactive, there's no opportunity for people to, to actually invest in thinking and adding value yeah. to the things that they see, which I think is very sad. It is. And I also think like, it's, it's frustrating because I don't think it's, it's like that across the board. No. You know, when you compare, when you compare, I think Western Cape, for example, to like the rest of South Africa. Uh, girl. In terms of like, <laughs> right? In terms of the way that they view innovation and like new ideas and uh, research, it's so different from how it is mm. in the rest of the country. Um, you really are empowered there to yeah. look for new information and, you know, yeah. just create. They, they, they encourage and you create. to create and to be innovative. But then in the rest of the country, and this is not everywhere, obviously. But in so many places, it almost feels like innovation is a threat. It feels like. It is. <laughs> it feels like, you know, your contribution, especially if you're at a lower level, you're just kind of coming in here trying to be smart, you know. And I remember there was actually a time when I was doing a, a certain block and there was, you know, the app called Trello. I don't know if you guys have ever come across that. Yes, yes. Yes. Yeah, so I was really getting frustrated in terms of the admin because as an intern, like you really are in charge of the admin of the ward and just, you know, keeping everything organized and keeping track of the patients. And so I just updated everything on Trello and I was like, okay, you know, introducing it to the team, the interns who loved it because it makes our lives easier. But then higher than that, at a level of the MOs and the consultants, they just felt like it was making life difficult. And they just didn't want to to engage with the app. But, you know, when I look back in Cape Town, that was the app we used for so many departments and so many wards. Yeah. And that, that's just an example of that demotivating experience of like, okay, anything new is just not going to be received. It's like, okay, you're just trying to be smart. And now there's a an app, someone who is a medical doctor created a whole app. You know, Plug her, please. Say her name. <laughs> Plug her. <laughs> Wardwick, <laughs> Dr. Peter and yes. um, created Wardwick. Yes. And it's like, you know, if she wasn't in the environment that cultivated that or had mm. encouragement, it wouldn't have happened. And there's so many people mm. with ideas right now within the space that are getting discouraged. They are high performing. They want to make the difference. They want to make the change, but they are just, they squeezed. Yeah. hundred percent. And I think another very sad part of the journey is 
the lack of collaboration. I mean, mm-hmm. I think any external experiences help you see things differently. I mean, collaboration to us is anesthesia, putting the patient to sleep while ops cut. <laughs> <laughs> hardly. It's really, it's hardly collaboration. And I think that's... <laughs> Please come on, like, can we actually collaborate? You know, in other, I, I, I was fortunate enough to be in a meeting with some of the senior execs of the Mayo Clinic recently. And mm. when they spoke about, or, and I think another one I've been able to, I forget, I think it's Cleveland Clinic as well. When they speak about, and these are, these are doctors, these are senior orthopedic surgeons, these are, senior oncologists, when they speak about collaboration, they mean the engineer and the IT person came to sit in theater one day just to watch how we do things. Collaboration is really accepting and acknowledging that your perspective isn't enough to solve the problem. That the way you understand Mm. leadership, the way you understand psychological safety might not bring forth the best outcome for the problem that you're facing. And mm, I mm. personally dream of a day when we can really have a, a department in faculty, right? In the faculty of health sciences that speaks to clinician innovation, where it looks like we're not just speaking about innovating as clinicians, but we're innovating with other sectors that do that well. Like if you look at how tech is currently disrupting healthcare, this is totally becoming a different conversation. It is. <laughs> I love it though. <laughs> I was thinking I'm the like, same okay. <laughs> Where is psychological safety? We have <laughs> maybe maybe I'll, I'll, find, I'll find a way to bring it back. Um, mm. But yeah, if you look at, uh, uh, you know, building, uh, that's my dream, you know, to see, to, the, to see that happen in faculty so that, Clinicians are enlightened to the value they play and can add as user innovators. Like that is a whole branch of innovators. The people who use the things or who have the problems creating the solutions. And I think what you spoke to Precious about people being discouraged to do that is, it's just going to perpetuate that, that culture of not being psychologically safe. And I think um, if we think of the competencies we need as the future, as as V alluded to, it's us becoming the generation that invites those concepts. So if somebody says that they have an idea, just listen to them. Maybe you have a perspective to offer or you know someone in a different industry who can help them take that just that little step further. And, and encouraging people not to... Not to be afraid of seeking advice outside of medicine, because the people who might have the courage to help you innovate might not be the people who are exposed to your context. That's yes. something a little special for me. Yeah. And I think that's brilliant because it's that linking. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, and there's nothing wrong with, with that innovation. There's nothing wrong with developing. We did have to do it in COVID. We all had to go remote. We all thought awesome. we couldn't do it. We all thought it was three weeks. And then two years down the line, we're still here. We're still here, 2022.0. And I will continue, continuously call it that because I don't think we're in 2021. Oh my God. Because we're still doing that same thing. Mm. It's a stand. It's morphed into one. It's really morphed into one. 
but also like I think I think what you're saying is not irrelevant, right? In terms of this conversation around innovation. It's very relevant yeah. because I think with psychological safe unsafety, let me say, one of the consequences is refusing to admit when you're wrong or when you need help. Yeah. And so you don't want to collaborate with people in other professions because you're not ready to admit you're wrong if they have another perspective or a different perspective. Right. And this, and this came on actually in, I don't know if you saw, there was a Twitter trend last week, NBCHB no. Twitter. And basically started no. off, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and summarize the story. Basically started off with a doctor saying that, you know, she basically can't believe someone had the nerve to argue with her about vaccines when she's got an NBCHB. And obviously then people on Twitter were very angry about that. And it set off a larger conversation about the arrogance of doctors, how they refuse to admit they're wrong, and also how there are other people in other industries that have the capacity to take in research and read research okay. and also know about vaccines far better yeah. than a clinical doctor actually does. So, and you know, that conversation, <laughs> that conversation highlighted the resistance for collaboration and also refusing to admit when you're wrong. Mm. And I do think that it's a side effect of being in spaces that are not psychologically safe. Yeah. And so you're very resistant. You're very resistant to, to hearing that you might not be either the most knowledgeable or have the best perspective on a certain issue. And maybe someone else needs to come in and help. Yeah. But it's also like low-key earth-shattering. <laughs> I mean, I don't think... I, I, had, I had a conversation with Peter Ann about the first time we walked into the Discovery Building. <laughs> yes. And until you see how there are other areas in industry that do this really excellently and it's not by the bedside, you actually don't get a sense of <laughs> how little you know. And, mm. I, and I'm not discrediting that we've learned and invested a huge amount of time in understanding the human body. But it's not the healthcare sector. And exactly. There's so much more. We do not mm-hmm. we do not work in the body. We work with the body outside, in a sector. And outside the body. Yes. And with all the environmental yes. factors coming in from all directions. Yes. And our training has not empowered us to work in the sector. Our training yes. has not empowered us to understand how to be competent in the sector, not with the body, but in the sector. And I think then you're absolutely right. Cultivating things like psychological safety becomes hard because you want to prove your expertise. And nobody's arguing with you there, right? We're not saying you're not mm. least bit in the body. We're saying, though, you have not been empowered to have the competency to function in the ecosystem effectively. And, yeah. and it's important for us then to start to ask ourselves the questions about, you know, the, and it goes back to even how allied professionals and, and doctors have tensions, right? Because we, we haven't been taught, even though we say it's a patient-centric model and a patient's at the center of care, it doesn't really work that way, right? It doesn't. We all, yeah. know, <laughs> we all know that it's still positioned for the doctor to be um, – the leader of the entire team and sometimes not necessarily leading effectively because they're blind to the other, the other uh, compounding factors in the, in the ecosystem 
that affects that human body that they have the expertise to deal with. So, mm. yeah, I think you're very and right. Also, you help us bring... Like being a, being a doctor and I like that we're bringing in the health and rehab team because being a doctor, I, I have no job to a business telling someone who's an occupational therapist or a physiotherapist what to do with their patient. I don't know. <laughs> that is completely Absolutely. out of my scope. And so yeah. it's, it's almost ridiculous, you know, that you are set as a deer. Obviously you are the, you're the center point because you are the, the, the common thread, but you're not. Yes. You're not actually the leader of what they do yeah. because you don't actually know what it is yeah. they do in, in detail. You really don't. Yeah. Absolutely. That makes me think of a puzzle. <laughs> mm. Tell us it more. makes me think of a puzzle and like the whole multidisciplinary concept. Yeah. yeah. You know, where one person is made up of every single part of their body and every single organ in their body. Yeah. And every single you know, whether it be a physio or it be an OT or it be a GP or it be a psychologist or it be, you know, any one of these experts and professionals have some sort of know-how. And for the whole body to work together, you need your hand to work. You need your leg to work. Yeah, you do. You know, and I think it's that is that puzzle pieces. Like, you know, when you build a puzzle, every single color comes together. Yeah. And then you're all sort of like, okay, and this whole puzzle is then the human body. And now you've, you've helped this human body. Exactly. And Absolutely. I think it's important for people to think like that as well. Mm. I love that you spoke of the, you know, something funny. I actually Googled how to think today. What did you come up with? So I was just, it was a personal reflection of mine just to, oh, okay. going back on this idea that I don't think we're trained to think really, no. I and mean, I don't think we're taught how to, like, I think we're taught to apply concepts, but not necessarily empowered to think. I mean, I like that you use that word in your analogy because I think that's, that's what this conversation probably helped us do. You know, we, we spent a lot of conversations digging into emotions. But I think in this one in particular, you know, we're searching through thoughts, ideas, and concepts to structure some, some helpful solutions. And I hope that that's what the listeners are hearing. Cause I think that there's, <laughs> we didn't even get through the article. <laughs> that's the sad part. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't get through the article, continued. but I think <laughs> we actually did not. But we spoke about just, you know, we, I think we, we framed and modeled the reality of the current context and hopefully encourage people to to be less afraid that, to be less afraid of the things that create psychological unsafety and more aware of how they contribute to those contexts. Because mm. my, my big fear often in these types of conversations is when things feel too systemic, they feel very far removed. Yes, so I want us to yes. tie back in the people <laughs> and maybe ask the second to closing question, which is, uh, like Precious, you alluded to it, what are some of the behaviors that you've experienced that reflect someone who who's, this, who's the product of a psychologically unsafe environment so that people can almost see themselves in in the broader reality of this conversation. Mm, yeah. I think I would, I would keep with refusing to admit when you're wrong. And yeah. also, I also think 
what happens when you're in that psychologically unsafe space and you learn those behaviors. So the behaviors mm. of punishing and humiliating other people and they spill over to your team members and when you become a leader, your subordinates, as well as the members of the public. Yeah. That 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 method of 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 teaching or informing or, or of engaging becomes toxic, not just in your workspace, but when you're engaging with other patients and how you treat them and how you engage with other people as well outside of patients. And those are the two that I would say. Yeah. V for you, I have a few that I've been thinking of. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I think I think I'd I'd like to touch on that toxic. And I think mm. it's it's remember if it's if you're in that space and you become somewhat toxic and you're in a toxic environment you share you sort of that toxicness so to say grows within your personal life mm. it becomes you know something of a nature thing mm. and i think that's that's a bad thing because then within your growth that's the way you're going and i think it's so hard it's so hard to come out of that sort it of is. space so i think it's to be like so to be aware within that space of like, okay, this is a toxic environment. Mm. And when you're aware of it, you often can say, okay, how far am I going to let it impact me? Cause, cause at the yeah. end of the day, I know that we're not, we're not an island. We definitely as individuals are not an island, mm. but it's important to protect our mental health and important to protect our, our physical health yeah. to say that, okay, in our lives, we, we, we live whole lives. Yeah. Whether we're a medical student, whether we're a medical doctor, whether we're a corporate accountant, mm. we live whole lives. And as much as we want to say that our jobs are our lives, they are part of our lives. Because mm. yeah. there's so much more to it. So I think it's it's also being aware of that. And I think boundaries come very, very important. Yeah. You know, and that builds your confidence, that builds that esteem. That builds that sense of trust instead of fear. Yeah. And I think it comes from that small space. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love mm. what you said because I think also be part of probably the, the – I think it's it's a hard question because it's very personal. It is. <laughs> everybody will, will – yeah, everybody will display their negative psychological safety traits differently. But I think for me, if I can – use myself as an example, I can't recall specific incidents, but I would think, you know, I'm probably reflecting a psychologically unsafe environment when I'm being dismissive. You know, if, if I just dismiss something someone has said or instead mm. of just saying, you know, I disagree with you here, completely dismissing them, then I think being condescending, and I think it's something we don't Ooh. often see ourselves doing, but like, Say so maybe somebody by mistake sees your badge and says, it says Lerato Khate, pediatrician. And they say, hey, Lerato. And you say, it's Dr. Khate. Hey. Like, <laughs> That's unnecessary. Your name is also your name. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm called for. <laughs> your name is also your name, though. You know? Yeah. And I'm not saying that, obviously, when the HOD rocks up first name basis, no, not at all. <laughs> but I think we're... Maybe your reaction to that type of gesture is a bit reaching. Mm. Uh, so mm. those are the the two examples I can think of that definitely not just 
reflect a a psychological somebody who's probably projecting from a psychologically unsafe environment, but somebody who's also contributing to it, right? Yeah. And somebody who's who's making it normal in that context. And I think the third one is not having the courage to apologize. One of the things Ooh. that the, the article speaks to is the fact that mistakes are normal. So we're in a psychologically unsafe place where it gives you literal anxiety to go say sorry. If we were in a, or, or to say, in corporate they say don't say sorry, but where you where you don't even have the courage to admit that you were wrong, you know, if the space was psychologically safe, we'd be able to say, oh man, I screwed up here, how could I have done it differently? Because you know that the person who's going to be telling you is not going to be judging you or punishing you for whatever the mistake was that you made. Uh, so you don't have to fight and be de- defensive and be ashamed. You can use it as a learning opportunity. So I think when we when we are paralyzed by fear to, and I think it's personally and even corporately, to apologize or to acknowledge that we've been wrong, we probably aren't in a psychologically safe relationship. Yeah. And I think that saying sorry is, is they, they often say it's hard to do. It's hard. But actually, if it's a space for growth, it is. and it's if a- it's a space for for something to be acknowledged and to say that we're all human and we can make a mistake and we're not made of, you know, I mean, like Iron Man, we're not made like Iron Man where we can't, you know, like we don't get touched and we don't get hurt. So I think that's also a space to know that we can be vulnerable, you know, and it's okay to do that. It's okay to feel that. Because others then see us as human as well. Absolutely. Yes. Because often if we don't see ourselves as human, then how do we expect another person to say, oh, you are human, you are a person, you have feelings. Absolutely. And it's also, I also think that one thing that facilitates that is getting to know people at a personal level. And obviously they say like, mm. you know, work is work. It's not, you know, it's not supposed to necessarily be this not social space. <laughs> yeah, no one's your friend or, you know, that's what people say. But the fine line. <laughs> there's a fine line. But I just think, you know, like, Getting to know the people that you're working with, getting to know them as people, seeing them after hours, whether it's, you know, in a group setting, when it's like a group team outing to a restaurant or something, just like being out of that space and getting to know each other, I think also helps yeah. with vulnerability. It's very difficult to be vulnerable with, with someone that you're not necessarily connecting with. Um, if it's just 100%. your colleague, like I just, think. yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would also just add to the, you know, also, I think being clear about the goal and the intention around correction and, mm-hmm. um, you know, managing conflict. And I think that's something mm-hmm. that we lose sight of when we fear those opportunities to grow is if you're dealing with someone who's going to correct you and receive the moment of correction properly, the goal is really about gaining clarity. The, the corrector is bringing someone attention to how they've behaved in such a situation and the receiver of the correction is having an opportunity to recognize how their behavior was aligned to the initial intention. So it's not actually Mm. uh, an environment where we're trying to attack you. We're just pointing out that your response to XY behavior or how you carried out XY didn't help us reach this outcome and that's the goal. And so next time I'm hoping you do it this way. And I think also how we navigate our understanding of the goal of correction and the goal of, you know, trying to manage conflict 
makes it easier to cultivate psychologically safe environments. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's very true. Ladies, we've had a long <laughs> but meaningful <laughs> conversation about creating psychological safety, unpacking normally a wounded part two. Thank you so much for your time. I don't want to be extra long, but I like our final closing questions. I just need to remember. Oh, yeah. This one is going to be related to the topic. <laughs> how, in your current context right now, how do you contribute to a psychologically safe environment? I think being, I think I've always been a leader at SADAG that has been very supportive and yeah. always been that person mm. that people can come to if they are struggling with something or need, you know, a little bit of information about a call or, you know, options about a referral and things like that. Cause I've been in that space for such a long time and I know in my brain how to link different mm. things, if that makes sense. So I think I'm one of those people that are able to and able to like, you know, be that open space for someone to ask for help all the time. So I think that's that's always been my nature and I think I've stuck to that. Mm. Well done. Love it. Well done. Precious. I think for me getting to know people. Love it. Yeah, I think I like getting to know what motivates people. And just in terms of their personal lives as well, um, I like kind of opening up the layers of the onion. So I think it becomes a lot more comfortable to then address certain things maybe that I'm uncomfortable with or for that person to also tell me, listen, I don't like X, Y, and Z that you've been doing at work or whatever the case may be. I think it really contributes mm. to, a, to a safe workspace. Yeah. Love it. I'd say for me, it's you, probably... Dr. Cutley. Lorato's <laughs> <laughs> also fine. Um, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> for me, I would say it's two things. I think my nature is very affirming. So I take what I do with you know people in general and I take it to work. I affirm, you know, if I see someone doing well or even if you, you know, mm. I'm in the office and you're wearing a pretty dress or I like that's your true. earrings on a call. Or your makeup is looking cute. Just affirming people for the effort that they've made or whatever I see that I admire. I think it's important for people to hear that. And then I'd say the second thing is helping people protect their boundaries. So like if I know that you have a special religious day, I'll make it my job to not contact you on that day. If I know that, you know, you want to make time to see your children, so you're taking leave, I will work hard with you to make sure we don't need to reach you in those times. And I think that's something I'm I'm really invested in. Even in our team in turn with Gang MD, you know, I make an effort to know when people want to go and leave, when their time off is, so that I help you protect your boundaries. So that's something that I'm, I'm working on daily. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, ladies. That's a Another good awesome one as a manager. <laughs> yeah. I can't wait for us to to potentially unpack the third part of Normally I'm Wounded mm. with some special guests. <laughs> Thank yeah. you, guys. Chat next yeah. week. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. bye.